Missing car alert. Have you seen my car? A black OD with license plate L33339 Missing from Limerick. The owner John Murphy, that's me, I'm John Murphy, right? And I'm seeking the public's help in locating my car robbed outside my door last Saturday early Sunday. I know I drove it home from the pub and parked outside my door and it's gone. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of my car, contact me, John Murphy, immediately via Bangor Road Garda Station. They know me in there. Don't talk to anyone but Con Scott, Sergeant Scott. He's on the case. Any details, no matter how small, could be crucial in the search for my car, robbed outside my door. Okay, Black Audi. L three 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 nine three three. Go on, that'll do, Margaret. Hit stop on that there for me. Anyway, so I'll do it now. Um, I'll do the intro now. Okay, let's see uh, if Will can get through it because oh he God. always, <laughs> the pressure he always fucks up. No. Oh man, I'm sorry. Already, right, no, no, I definitely am going to fuck up. So anyway, um, three, two, one. <laughs> oh shit, I already fucked up. <clears throat> it, you start with hello. I know, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah I know, yeah. <laughs> Three, two, one. <laughs> I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. <gasps> what did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello, and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where each week we pick our favourite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host Will, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special, and I'm joined, once again, by my co-host and writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV... Kevin. Hello, Will. How are you getting on? I <laughs> sounded very chipper the way you said it there. <laughs> well, you see, I'm trying to get myself, well, I'm not getting myself in the mood for being proper and British and uh, whodunity, but I'm kind of nervous because um, I'm afraid this is the week you might finally either crack the back of my skull with a lead pipe or lace my coffee with poison. That That's not me. That's Podbot you got to watch out for. <laughs> that's- Kevin. Are you ready? Yes. We're going to be doing. We're talking about whodunits. Jesus! I just as you were saying that, I was trying to think in my head. Who is Sherlock's sidekick? It's um Watson. I'm your Watson. Ah, so, uh, yeah, you're, you're fine. <laughs> Grace, <laughs> but Kevin, this week, like many of the episodes of this season, we are very blessed to be joined by uh, an incredible co-host. And our special co-host this week is a writer of four feature films, including Sinister, Sinister 2, and Marvel's Doctor Strange, no less. He's also a novelist with five novels under his belt, including his most recent novel, Day Zero. And uh, we have him, he's credited as C. Robert Cargill, but we're going to call him informally Cargill. Captain. Captain (laughs) Cargill. (laughs) Cargill. Oh, Captain, my Captain. (laughs) That's what the C stands for, isn't it? It's uh, Captain. That's right, Captain Cargill. (laughs) Cargill, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, brilliant. And we're here this week to talk about whodunits. Uh, what is your relationship with Who Done It's Carrie? I'm going to put you in a hot seat straight away. <laughs> you know, no. Um, uh, 
here here's the thing and this will this will connect with you guys so over here in the states we have uh this channel called uh pbs public broadcast system and it's kind of our federally subsidized uh uh local station that carries a bunch of content um and in the 80s um uh, you know, we didn't have like much like you guys. We didn't have a lot of stations until cable came along, and PBS was one yeah. of the main stations you would watch. Well, my father's favorite television show on television was this show called Mystery. Mystery is made possible by a grant from Mobile Corporation, and it had an exclamation point. Uh, for 10 years, it was hosted by Vincent Price, of all people. Um, and it was my dad's favorite show in the world, um, so much so that he called it his show, as in, like, my show is on. So when he said, <laughs> his I'm going to be watching my show, he was talking about mystery. Now, what mystery was, was uh, there was this running joke back in the 80s about PBS that, you know, why would you want to watch uh, network television where you can watch sitcoms and made-for-TV movies and news programs when you can watch PBS where you can watch British sitcoms, British made-for-TV movies, and uh, uh, new shows. Um, and what mystery was, was it was all of the British procedurals that were coming out at the time being sold over here. Right. So I grew up every Thursday night. My dad was watching Miss Marple, Sherlock Holmes, uh, Poirot, Lovejoy, uh, Prime Suspect. <laughs> wow, Jesus. Um, and so that's, so that's what I grew up watching was a bunch of, you know, these British procedurals, which were far and away better than a lot of the American procedurals is, you know, we occasionally had like murder. She wrote what, uh, Columbo, um, uh, Maddox, um, you know, um, uh, Rockford Files. Some of them, you know, some of like those were great, but most of our procedurals are very police oriented, you know, Cagney and Lacey, yeah. uh, Hill Street Blues, you know, things that were very much about how hard it is to be a cop as opposed to good old fashioned detective stories. Uh, but yeah, I grew up just in love with whodunits. Good evening. Welcome once again to Gory Mansion. I'm Vincent Price. Tonight on Mystery, we're back with the third series about our old friend Horace Rumpel of the Bailey, London's Central Criminal Court. <laughs> uh, the other aspect was, of my childhood was my family had uh, family night. And what we do every right. Saturday night, we would make homemade pizza and we would rent a movie from the video store and watch it as a family. And whenever it was my dad's turn, he would always pick a thriller or a mystery movie. That's all. So anything that came out in the 80s and 90s uh, uh, was baked into my DNA. Um, oh. you know, when, 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 uh, uh, they did the murder on the Orient Express recently in my head, the entire time I was comparing it to the, the, uh, eight late eighties version with Hercule Poirot of, uh, uh, I forget the name of the actor who was playing oh. him. Um, yeah. Uh, um, it wasn't David Suchet, was it? Yeah, it is David Suchet. That's who it was. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so it, in my head, I was, that's who, that's who I see as Hercule Poirot is David Suchet because that's what I grew up with. So my relationship with whodunits is I, it's just baked into my DNA. It is just, I love them. Uh, I love the format of them. I, I love great ones. I love terrible ones. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I'm always looking for a good new one. The only, the only issue I have as a storyteller is that usually a, um, uh, uh, a, a good whodunit doesn't, always play again as well the second time like once you yeah. know yeah. this doesn't have that repeatability yeah, you, factor where you yeah you yeah. start to see the how the screenwriter uh was um 
misdirecting you deliberately and showing you things that weren't necessarily important to keep you wondering who it is. So most whodunits usually are only good once through, whereas, you know, occasionally like the greats, um, uh, like, you know, a a lot of Agatha Christie stuff uh, really, really holds up over time to infinite rewatches. It's. I think it's one of the hardest. They're one of the hardest things to write. And I wrote a, a whodunit once, which wasn't a murder mystery, but it was sort of like an unmasking of. Um, it was sort of uh, t- taking a superhero concept and putting you in the in the in the shoes of the Lois Lane character and her not knowing who this uh, savior was and having to sort of follow the clues and unmask them. So for the first time, we were unaware of who that person would be. And I found it so difficult to sort of write red herrings that still managed to move the story forward or to progress the character where it didn't feel like this was all dead space and that it actually felt like even though she's going down this tact and this is not the person and she discovers at some point that that person isn't who she's looking for, that she's still grown from that experience. And uh, yeah, it, it made me really respect a lot of those procedural TV shows where I just churned that out week after week after week. Mm-hmm. And it's like... That is hard stuff to write. It's probably the hardest stuff to write. It can be, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, especially, like, it's one of those things where it depends on what kind of writer you are. Because, you know, of course, there's two major types of writers. There's planners and pantsers. You have your people that completely outline beforehand and know where you're going. And then the people that just kind of, like Stephen King, who just sit down with an idea and write. And then, you know, have to go Say back. Say that again, planners or pantsers? Yeah. Planners and pantsers. So you've got the people who are okay. planning and the people who are flying by the seat of their pants. Oh, I get you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Stephen King is that writer. No, he is. And the thing is, is it doesn't like people are like, what's the best way to do it? And it's like whatever way gets words on the pages for you, because Mm -hmm. everybody's brain works differently. And it takes. I always get that sense with with King as well, where I feel like I'm sensing this is the moment where he got slightly bored of the story and he was already thinking about the next one (laughs) because it just starts to drift towards some sort of conclusion. And the story stops. <laughs> he's he's said openly. In fact, he says in his book on writing, you know, they don't pay you to uh, uh, they they pay you to finish. Um, so uh, they he he has that point where he's always like, I just have to finish this and turn this in, and that's usually yeah, where get he, it done. He stops, make it perfect. Yeah, and whereas you know, if you have plenty of time, if you're not under contract for stuff, you know, it usually takes about the same amount of time because you can either spend a lot of time planning it out and then it kind of flows because you know where everything goes or you're just it you're you find where it goes and then you've got to go back and rewrite to make your ending work because it's not always going to work the way you put it down on the page so it takes roughly the same amount of time to do that but with a whodunit you pretty much have to be a planner you can't really pants a whodunit you have to know (laughs) who it is at the end and if you are typically somebody who likes to pants it and just find the excitement of writing and, and the discovery in the act of of sitting at the uh, sitting at your keyboard, um, it can be really hard because it's like, oh, God, I've got to now fill in all this space. I already know who the killer is, so there's nothing exciting left for me as a writer. Now I just have to pull all these these tricks, and sometimes you feel like a fraud. You feel like you know the audience looks at you like a wizard, and you're just a stage magician doing you know little yeah. tricks of magic yeah. and misdirection. <laughs> and you can it can it can be hard. You can feel very fraudulent doing it. When I was trying to think about sort of ones that pull off successfully, what I don't like are the the whodunits where once the protagonist has deduced who the killer was or who the, the, the person that perpetrated whatever crime is going on in the story, 
they sort of reveal stuff that we weren't privy to in the story where it's like they will expand the scene. So you're getting to see moments that weren't shown. And I always feel like that's a bit of a cheat. Whereas it's a huge stuff like cheat. The Sixth Sense, The Sixth Sense where they show you everything that you've already seen, but from the the, the perspective where you're at in the story, with the information that you have at that point, you're seeing the scenes differently. And that to me feels like that's a, a magic trick where it's, it's a beautiful reveal rather than feeling like a con job or a cheat. Who donuts aren't like you know my comfort food? Like you were saying, you, you you're I love the, the way you described it. That you know you devoured it all because it was your dad's favorite genre. But for me, we were getting the same stuff over here. But those programs were invariably on on a Sunday afternoon, and it would <laughs> and it, it, the association was school was happening the next day. So it kind of filled me with dread. What I love about those British BBC ones as well is that they they drape this this murder, they drape the taking of life in this warm, cosy blanket, and it makes you feel fuzzy and warm. And <laughs> I think it's so contradictory; it's hilarious. But f- on revisiting some of my favorite whodunits and ones that I you know didn't really like, uh, my favorite whodunits are actually films and stories that aren't really about the crime or the motives for the crime. It's, it's all, the, the ones that I can revisit over and over again are the stories that actually are about something totally different, so, something totally else. The, so, the, the subtext of the actual, of the actual story. And the, the whodunit is just a device to get us, you know, to, 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 to take these characters on a journey. So this like. is where it gets a bit nebulous because there are some films which could be classified as a whodunit and, uh, but also that's not what they're being sold on. That's not sort of the, the thing, the draw that, that, people are um watching the film for like scream for example what's your favorite scary movie that's Mm -hmm. a a whodunit where they reveal who the killer is but i think it's missing that one thing that sort of um puts it squarely in that category which is that you don't have the protagonist of that story sleuthing deducing trying to solve the 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 crime it's stuff it's just that um she's unaware of who is perpetrating these acts against her until it's revealed at the end so it's like it's missing that that key thing i think that makes a whodunit which is the investigation part. I'm afraid that was a wrong answer. That's actually, mm. that's an answer that I've given multiple times because there's a big argument in the horror community as to what the difference is between a horror and a thriller. And there are people who try to use thriller as kind of like the phrase elevated genre, you know, where it's like, oh, horror is, you know, cheap, whereas a thriller is a quality Hollywood horror movie. Um, (laughs) I remember that they tried to sell Scream as a thriller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because (laughs) there was that there was that they wanted to put it in the class with, you know, um, uh, with uh, Silence of the Lambs. And my answer has always been, I think that the chief difference between what we constitute as a thriller and what we constitute as a horror film is the POV of the protagonist. If the protagonist is a in the victim class, then it's a horror movie. If the protagonist is an investigator investigating violence against other people, that's a thriller. And I think that's kind of yeah. that line between a whodunit is that, you know, we're usually, you know, a great whodunit. When we think of whodunits, especially in the phrase, who done it? We are thinking of Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple coming in. You know, Angela. We're Lansbury. in the position of the detective. Yeah. We're like, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. we're trying to figure it out with them. Yeah, we're we are coming in and we're interviewing the victims. We're inter, you know, we're interviewing the people, the suspects. That's the POV of that. Whereas, you know, Scream isn't told from the point of view of a police chief who has kids turning up dead and has to find out who this killer is. <laughs> yeah, it's told from the point mm-hmm. of view of a high school girl who 
could be one of the victims. And that's that's where I think we we draw the line between what is constitutes as horror and what constitutes who done it. So here's a question yeah. for you guys, because I was asking some of my friends um, like what their favorites were. And one that came up, which it didn't occur to me until he said it. Uh, this is Kieran Foy, by the way, who, who did your yeah. um, sequel, did Sinister 2. He said The Fugitive. I was like, oh, well, mm-hmm. I guess that the TV show was definitely a whodunit. The movie yeah. was too. Um, who who killed who killed his wife? And he yeah. breaks out of prison to find out who killed his wife. He's not a standard detective, which is what makes that such an exciting version of a whodunit. But, but, but then it's lacking that ensemble factor. The though, ensemble is the <laughs> thing that that's in my head. It's like it's like an ensemble of like big named actors in a location. There's a there's there's a crime and there's detective and there's a reveal and they all have motives. And I suppose that's the kind of like the you know the basement level kind of like you know for me that's how I define who done it or how I try to narrow down my pick a little bit. Yeah, there's a couple. I was I was going to bring this up myself because there's a couple that because I you know I was I just decided I was like okay so w- what is exactly constituted as a whodunit? Um, Hit me. And uh, yeah. and when I googled it, what came up is a couple things that I would not have put in the category. But then thinking about it, you know, primal fear. Primal fear is a whodunit. Oh, um, which uh, Richard Gere and uh, Edward Norton. Um, Edward Norton, yeah. Richard Gere speak you do not speak your job is just to sit there and look innocent well i am innocent that's it that's exactly how i want you to look you remember that look in the mirror if you have to even when the headline is murder there was someone else in that room it was the third person <laughs> yeah and but that that abs like did this person commit the crime or did they not and there's a whole subgenre of that kind of yeah like witness from the for the prosecution like presumed innocent you know, yeah, with Harrison yeah, yeah. Ford. Yeah. Uh, then you've got the usual suspects. Is the usual suspects a whodunit? Usually, when there is a crime, there is a motive. I want to know why. 27 men died on that pier for what looks to be $91 million worth of dope that wasn't there. Usually, when there is a lineup, there's only one real suspect. This whole thing was a shakedown. And there's no way they'd line five felons in the same room. But this is not the usual crime. This is not the usual motive. He was in the harbor killing many men. Kaiser Soze! He saw Kaiser Soze. And these are not the usual suspects. Like, who is Kaiser Soze <laughs> is a very real question in that movie. And Kaiser Soze yeah. is the one that puts these people in this position. Is it a whodunit or isn't? I think that film is an entire cheat. It's a very stylish film. It's a very, you know, <laughs> slick and compelling film. But the reveal at the end of that film is the equivalent of and then they woke up and it was all a dream. So um, I, I, even as a teenager, I had my arms crossed going, that's bullshit. I don't buy it. But we don't even know how many of those characters are real. It's like, it's, it's all a fantasy. It, 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 what was that, that film that came out in the early 2000s, Identity? Mm-hmm. Where oh, that Jack felt, Yeah, that felt like, oh, this is a cracking whodunit. And yeah. then the reveal at the end of this spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen <laughs> yeah. it, it's revealed that all the characters are, um, they're split personalities within this character who's in a psychiatric uh, hospital. Mm-hmm. And he's killing off all of his own, he's killing off all of his own multiple personalities. Yeah, and it was like, um, okay, that's an interesting twist, but uh, yeah, it, 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 that one as well felt like a little bit of a cheat where it felt like did you start that did you plant that or pants that uh, <laughs> right 
Oh, that's that's definitely played. Like it's funny because that movie came out shortly after uh, adaptation, and one of the big running gags is adaptation is this screenplay that just that his twin brother has written that Hollywood just loves called Three. Okay, there's a serial killer, right? Well, no, wait, and he's being hunted by a cop, and he's taunting the cop, right? Sending clues who his next victim is. He's already holding her hostage in his creepy basement. So the cop gets obsessed with figuring out her identity and in the process falls in love with her. Even though he's never even met her. She becomes like 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 the unattainable, like like the holy grail. It's a little obvious, don't you think? Okay, but here's the twist. We find out that that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder. Right? See, he's he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that fucked up? The only idea more overused than serial killers is multiple personality. On top of that, you explore the notion that cop and criminal are really two aspects of the same person. See every cop movie ever made for other examples of this. Mom called it psychologically taught. The other thing is, there's no way to write this. Did you consider that? I mean, how, how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and, and working in a police station at the same time? Trick photography. Okay, that's not what I'm asking. Listen closely. What I'm asking is, in the reality of this movie, where there's only one character, right? Okay? How could you... What, what exactly would... I agree with Mom. Very taut. Sybil meets, I don't know, Dress to Kill. Cool. I really like Dress to Kill. Until the third act denouement. That's not how it's pronounced. Uh, and then Identity came out, man. and all the people in the credit community were like, man, that's literally three. Like, yeah, literally, Charlie ex- Coffin was just making fun of this movie. <laughs> you're, you're so right. I remember being in the cinema, and there was this is the type of film that adaptation is taking the piss out of. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Can I share with you, because I went, uh, I put a lot in a, not put in a homework and watching You went on a crusade. I went on a crusade to try and fill in some blanks, right? And I said I was going to try and fill in some slightly esoteric picks. Um, and uh, they, they, in my opinion, weren't totally successful. But I think I should mention one in particular, or two in particular. Um, one being Eugene Levy's only directorial uh, feature film, which was a whodunit called Once Upon a Crime. And it has a cracking class. It. Came out in 92. It's got Sybil Shepherd, John Candy, uh, Jim Belushi, Richard Lewis, Sean Young. Wanted. An unemployed actor. My name uh, Balboa. Rocky Balboa. A compulsive gambler. This is my night. I'm rolling like a hunchback doing somersault. Yes! An exotic tourist. I feel like a fugitive. It's like quicksand. The more you struggle, the deeper you sink. An ugly American. Oh, this is a police car? And a boy removed from my ass bigger than this. A pretty American. East Coast. Yes, New Jersey. I'm so sorry. An irresistible charmer. From the moment I first saw you, the light shimmering off your safety deposit box. A countess. But if the police investigate, they'll discover it wasn't you I was in bed with. Ah. An inspector to catch the killer. Lives are at the stake. I'll do anything you ask. Anything you want. Foreplay. Pitiful lives, but lives nevertheless. 
and it's like a it's a, a whodunit where a bunch of Americans end up in Monte Carlo and a uh, a very wealthy person is dead and there's a they have a dog and they they're all getting accused of the crime and you know nobody really knows what's going on and is it, it a murder? W- there's a murder. It's a murder. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry, there's a murder. Yeah, there's a murder and they all got accused by the local and there's a local police like there there is a a local French detective in the guise of a, you know French Poirot type type of guys and it just broke my heart because I wanted it to be I wanted it to be good because I love Eugene Levy and it just didn't land uh, for me but still it was a, a lovely logic to see the other one that I watched the filling a gap which was a really curious one it was a box office bomb it was panned at the time but it's uh, Radioland Murders Can you see you're mad mad you say I'm the one with the branding iron and you're the one with the soft pink flesh Radio is a land of imagination Now talk I don't have time to be talked out of divorcing you 40 seconds to air I'll snap without you Penny I could do something completely crackers But tonight between the fun and the fantasy We don't have a script And no director Someone is adding a mystery I have a bad feeling hey. about this That isn't in the script <laughs> oh, I'll be glad when you Yeah it's a real good one <laughs> I've and not seen that either. It's, it's well worth a watch. It's came out and it's uh, it was originally so it's George Lucas's brainchild. He came up with it like right after American Graffiti, and so this is back in the early seventies when oh, he was okay yeah. when he was talking to Universal about these different projects. And Universal were kind of going, "Oh yeah, what have you got next?" And they said, "Well, I've got this uh, this uh, Agatha Christie's type um, story set in a set in a, a new radio station, or, or I've got this uh, space story." And so the space story ended up being Star Wars, and uh, Radioland Murders get, 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 like, was stuck in development development hell for nearly two decades until it came out. And the result, oh, Mel of, Smith directed it. Yeah, Mel Smith directed it, and it is actually it's very uh, very nicely made. It's stylishly made. Has a fantastic cast. Um, Oh, Mary Stuart Masterson is the lead. Um, there's Stephen Tobolowsky. There's uh, oh, Jeekers. I'm oh, sorry, all the names are escaping. Ned Beatty, Michael McKean, yeah. Jeffrey Tambor, yeah, Christopher Lloyd. Great cast. I'm looking on Rotten Tomatoes here, and it is um that that's a low uh, score. Even though hey, Rotten Tomatoes, doesn't matter. It's doesn't it's really it's matter. actually I would I, if anyone's curious about. If anything that's you know came out of the Lucasfilm stable and they haven't seen Radio Land Murders, I would recommend you watching it because it is stylishly made and it's it is actually fun. It gets very ridiculous and really silly, but it is actually kind of fun. Universal Pictures and George Lucas invite you to tune in to WBN live while it still is. Radio Land Murders, directed by Mel Smith. I suppose I can tell you some of the ones that I went on a, a journey to sort of plug gaps in, and I I had a lot to get through because I realized when I started to look up like classic whodunits, it was going way back to the 40s, obviously, and um, there was a lot I hadn't seen. But one that immediately sort of landed with me, and I thought, that's a cracking film, is Laura, the Otto Preminger uh, uh, one. <laughs> Remember when Laura bought these glasses, she loved them. I was groping for some way to keep Laura's name out of it. She was always quick to seize upon anything that would improve her mind or her appearance. Laura had innate breeding. I selected a more attractive hairdress for her. I taught her what clothes were more becoming to her. Through me, she met everyone. Men admired her. 
women envied her. It's, it's got another thing which I think is indicative of a lot of whodunits, which is that the murder happens off screen or we're, we're not present for the murder or for enough of the murder to be able to, to get a handle on who uh, perpetrated it. And um, it follows a detective who comes in and um, for much of the story, uh, he is investigating the boyfriend. He's investigating the people that she worked with. He's investigating um, her lover-to-be, the person that she was betrothed to. And uh, there's a painting of Laura that's in her apartment where he's spending most of his time and he's slightly falling in love with the painting until twist after twist after twist after twist happens. And um, each one got me. So I watched Laura after I'd watched The Big Sleep, which felt much more of um, a sort of a film noir, like like hair-boiled uh, um, classic Bogart detective story and then to get into lore it was like oh no this no this is a whodunit mm-hmm. the the big sleep is is uh it's a crime story but it, it doesn't feel like what you'd expect of a, of a classic whodunit so laura have you have you seen that or no, no man that's going on my watch list no no, yeah, no you gotta that's, watch that's, it. that's one of those that has been a hole in my uh in my thing for a long time it was for me as well and and i just i uh, I dug into it. I loved it. But I, I'll, I'll spit out some titles here because I was like going through so many. So yeah. I went back and you I watched. T- you actually did watch a huge amount this past week. <laughs> I did. And I was like, I've, I've got a sort of like, um, the problem was, is that when you're talking about whodunits, they're all sort of enjoyable and they've all got their, their twists and their turns. But trying to land on what a, a great scene is, you're really just coming down to the reveals. Like what, mm-hmm. what are the, the moments where the, the killer is unmasked? Uh, or the, the the perpetrator is discovered. Um, so I found it hard in that respect to sort of zero on on the scene, but I went back and I watched Manhattan Murder Mystery. Listen, why don't you come in for a, a second and have a drink with us? Oh! Couldn't you keep the conversation going a little longer in there? This yeah. guy showed me his stamp collection one more time. You know, they're looking forward to their anniversary. She had a heart attack. <gasps> She's dead. Never once mentioned that she had a heart condition. Maybe this guy killed her, you know? Like he's got really? like a young Tootsie stash. No, no, this guy gets his jollies from licking the back of postage stamps. Mm-hmm. Which yes. I thought had a great vibe. Could I pick out a great scene from it? I don't know, but it's just, it's, it's the whole thing. It's, uh, it's just got a lovely, um, cozy uh, vibe to it yeah can I jump in there before you move on from that Go because on. I rewatched Manhattan Murder Mystery and I, re- I, I I remember it actually was the film I watched it when it came out back in the 90s and it was the film that made me want to live in New York it was that there was a, a, a vibe <laughs> uh, that it captured in more than any other film. Those cramped I, apartments. Those, it was the cramp, but there was a, but yeah, there were the cramped apartments that basically, when you walked out of them, you were in New York. You could go to a, a show, you could go to a basketball game, or you could go to like there was just life. Was it was just absolutely happening. Wasn't there? A, there's you. a scene that where um, Diane Keaton can't sleep. This is the Woody Allen film uh, uh, that. Uh, he made in the 90s Diane Keaton can't sleep she's obsessed with trying to figure out what's happened to her neighbour her neighbour has uh, supposedly dropped dead yeah. and um, they just had a, a dinner uh, with them and it doesn't add up to her and she's sort of becoming more and more fixated on trying to solve what happened to the wife yeah. of uh, the guys on the same floor as her And um, but there's that moment in it where it's like 2 o'clock in the morning and she thinks oh, I'll just call up uh, Angela um, Angelica Houston and um and uh, what's this guy? The, the guy from Mash, uh, Alan, Alan, Alan Alda, Alan, Alan Alda, and they yeah. just go for dinner at like two o'clock in the morning, and it's like that's New York for you. I'll pick a great scene from that. It's when she breaks into her neighbor's apartment. Oh 
phones and she's poking around and she and she she picks up the phone and she ring, rings Alan Alda to say I'm in my mini's apartment and he's like what are you doing just get out and what happens but the neighbour comes in and it's a small pokey apartment so there's real tension this is a Woody Allen one. there's real tension where she's just scuttling around like one corner while the, the owner is there and she hides under a bed and oh my god like I, I was digging my nails into the into the chair watching it for you know it's, like, it's a cracker it's really good Hello. Ted. I'm in his apartment. The urn is missing. It's gone. Yeah, I think it might have been... He had the satchel last night. He was carrying his bag, and I think that might have been what he had in his satchel. Listen, I'd get out of there right away if I were you. No, no, no. Go, go, go. We'll, do, we'll, we'll talk more from your apartment. He's not going snorkeling with his brother. He's got two tickets to Paris... He's got reservations at the George Sank Hotel with a woman named Helen Moss. I got, I, I gotta say, I, I, just as a quick aside, um, saying that a Woody Allen movie made you want to move to New York is like if I said Richard, a Richard Curtis movie made me want to move to London. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's like, well, um, I mean, technically they should have taken it, but it's not in New York. I know. I certainly, I certainly, it was when I rewatched it last weekend, I realized it was a very romanticized mm-hmm. uh, version of New York that I, that I fell in love with. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's probably a rich person's version of New York oh, where you can just like, you those know. Those tiny apartments are millions, I'd assume. Absolutely. Like, you know, to own them. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's an expensive place even when you're, it, it, it's an expensive, weird place even when you're wealthy. It is a, New York is its own thing that you, uh, everybody that lives in New York hates it and thinks it's the greatest city on earth it is uh it is the, uh, that's beautiful. what they're telling you that's what they're telling themselves yes it just feels like it, it to me it just seems like it's twitter the 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 city where it just never stops and everybody is like <laughs> you know oh, monologuing I, all over the place I, I, when i made sinister i i was living in new york for uh, uh a few months and i got the i got the perfect new york experience i'm walking down the road and somebody is turning and there's a guy jackhammering and the guy in the car starts screaming at the guy jackhammering and the guy jackhammering stops jackhammering for a second goes hey i'm working here and <laughs> I was like, it's real it's really, it was like the first time i was on the, the last train out of waterloo and uh and some guy's wobbling around and looks at someone and someone goes oi mate who you looking at um, and it's like, oh my god, I'm going to watch a real fight. They actually speak this. like that. <laughs> yeah. That's why. That's what I want to go. That's why I love New York. Like it's crazy. It is crazy, and crazy shit happens. Fantastic. Um, um, I'll tell you some more. Do you know what I just watched? Actually, just it's one of the most recent ones. Like Knives Out, I think uh, everyone has seen that, and that's a, that's yeah. a cracking one where it feels like that's a. That's telling you a story. It's not just plot. The plot yeah. is an artifice to tell you a story that that is uh, quite earnest and and it's got that lovely final image to it where you feel like, oh yeah, we got two for one here. We got a a, a lovely story about the changing face of America and sort of the 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 politics and the the confusion that's going on at the moment. But also this classic whodunit where you couldn't tell who was responsible and why. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to request that you all stay until the investigation is completed. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. 
But um, the one that I saw just recently, which just came out last year, oh, did it come out last year or did it come out this year? Thanks to the pandemic, I don't know what the difference between 2020 and 2021. It was Kid Detective. So what can I help you with? Somebody murdered my boyfriend. Seriously? Pretty seriously. He was stabbed 17 times. Is it possible he was involved in drugs? No, he would never do drugs. Gambling? No, he would never gamble. Demon worship? No, he would never worship a demon. Oh, I've heard about this. Tell me more. It's really good. It's a... uh, Adam Brody is, he's sort of, um, he's a, an arrested, uh, how would you put it? He's like a young adult. He's not grown up. And he was famous for being uh, an oddity within his community where he was like a, a kid detective. He had a okay. treehouse sort of uh, office and he would solve missing cats and all the kind of things. And he's never sort of, um, he's never sort of developed beyond that. Right. And uh, he's sort of haunted by one of his friends who was kidnapped and killed. And... um and there's uh, another murder that takes place and he's brought in to uh to try and help the girlfriend of the guy that's gone missing to figure out what happened and it's really sardonic and it's really glib but it's not spoofy and it's not um it's not sort of a pastiche on the genre it's having fun within it but it really does it's quite affecting and just the tone of it was so refreshing it just felt like this is a this is a great little film. So I would recommend for those out there who haven't tracked down Kid Detective. It's really new. I think, it, as I say, it just came out a few months ago. Um, it's brilliant. It's worth watching. Class. Definitely going to watch that. Uh, I also watched The Last of Sheila for the first time. Uh, that was oh. on my list. Uh, uh, Last of Sheila is one of those relative unknowns that got dug up by some film geeks recently. And man, not only is that an incredible cast, but what a wonderfully dark little whodunit. Yeah, and it, it, I mean that one starts with the murder, mm-hmm. so you don't really have that in a so lot of. So tell me more. Give us more. It's background. written by it's written by Anthony Perkins and um, oh god, oh Stephen Sondheim. Uh, yeah, Stephen. Sondheim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was the last of Sheila. That was what they thought anyway, until they started playing Sheila's game. Tom thought he could beat the game. Christine played for the prize. Clinton was the master of the game. Lee played because she had to. Philip knew too much about the game. I was surprised. Well, I, I was trying to figure out why Anthony Perkins didn't star in it. Because um, it feels like there's a few roles within that film that are tailor-made for him. But apparently he was sh- off shooting something else at the time. So, uh, But it's a it's a cracking little um, murder mystery. It takes place on a, on a yacht called The Last of Sheila. Wow. And uh, it's a, a mystery writer whose wife has been killed. And there's sort of... Um, He's on a. Uh, he's trying to expose them, I think, for uh, their hypocrisy and their right. uh, connections to what went down. Yeah, uh, he, he's playing games. He's invited them all for a weekend on the yacht, and they're playing games. But all the games are exposing, are meant to expose who the killer is, and wow. uh, and uh, so we are wondering who the killer is this entire time. Uh, uh, while uh, these bizarre games are being played. And it is 
It's, I mean, the cast is, it's James Coburn, Richard Benjamin, James Mason, Diane Cannon, Ian McShane, Raquel Welsh. It's, and everybody wow. is. It's stocked. Tom, where's the ice pick? What? I said, where's the bloody ice pick? That's fantastic. I have to watch that. So I've now got four films on my watch list just from this. Um, yeah. Do you have any more or should we dig into Cargill's or do you have any more you want to mention? There's a, there's a few others and um, if any of them sort of like vibe with you guys, you can sort of jump in. I watch yeah. Clute. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I don't know whether I would uh, whether I would classify Clute as a whodunit in that it isn't that ensemble thing. It, it really is about her character um, and sort of the crime that she's caught up in. Uh, it's very 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it feels a lot more progressive and modern than it is i think it's 1971 i think yeah. it came out but um yeah you, you can see where that film kicked up a fuss back then uh just for the character alone that she was portraying she's playing that's a call girl donald sutherland uh, and uh, jane, fonda. jane fonda yeah um that's one we're watching the long goodbye as well oh uh, yes hey hey mrs way it's such a it's got such great style and Elliot Gould is a really interesting, he's got a really interesting take on that classic detective where he's he's much more um, neurotic and sort of uh, affected and, and in his own head and muttering to himself and sort of not really aware or, or he's not really present within the world that he's in. Um, that's uh, Altman, isn't it, Robert Altman? Yeah, it's, it, it does this genius thing where, because, you know, it's these old Dashiell Hammett no- It's one of the old Dashiell Hammett novels. And so he's taking the internal dialogue that you have, because Dashiell Hammett had a very specific style, and, you know, uh, all the books are narrated and explaining these things. So Altman takes that and takes a bunch of his best kind of lines and thoughts from his head, and he just has, uh, he has him mumble them. And yeah, he, stream just, of consciousness type yes. thing. Yeah, and so he's just kind of mumbling his various thoughts, and people are like, "What? Huh?" And there's no nothing. Um, and uh, yeah, it's yeah, I love the long goodbye. It's it's also you know, it, L.A. in that period is so sort of seductive on screen. It just looks like like a thriving, exciting place to be where um, it doesn't feel so corporate, even though I'm sure it was. Uh, but it, it just feels a bit more dingy, a bit more like uh, New York, uh, or how we would perceive New York. It's too late to try when I hello. Um, I watched a lot of other ones that I didn't really connect with, and I don't really like to sort of talk about films that I didn't like, but I didn't really get on with Blowout. Um, mm. I realised that I had only ever seen the first half of Blowout. <laughs> Brian De Palma, how do you? Unfortunately, Cargill, I'm I'm not the 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 greatest fan of Brian De Palma. He's just films just don't gel with me, and uh, um, yeah, so I'm <laughs> I'm feigning surprise. I'm not <laughs> I'm not a huge De Palma fan either, but it's very weird in the film community to find people who don't like De Palma. Like yeah. we, we are like on a small because island. he is so cinema. It's like it's it's all there on screen. It's but like he's also so his movies are very kind of sleazy in a way that yeah. is not you know, fun to revisit or watch. I, and it's not that I d- dislike De Palma. There's a number of great De Palma films. I love Phantom of the Paradise. Untouchables is pretty fucking rad. Um, yeah. Uh, but then you get stuff like Blowout and it's love it or don't. Uh, and it's <laughs> in that period where he really was like, oh, hey, it's the 80s. So we could do these sexy thrillers, but we can do the stuff we weren't able to do on film before. And as a result, you get something that's a little skeezy. It gets too bombastic. Yeah. It's also a thing where you feel where I felt like that Nancy Allen's character should be the protagonist of that story, mm-hmm. but she's not. 
and therefore because the story is is pulling in her direction so much her character has to be too stupid to exist within the the story itself so she's I know they may have had conversations which is like, let's play her like a, a Marilyn Monroe type and, and put her in, you know, Bronx accent or whatever accent she's putting on. But she's so, um, she's so uh, dumb and irritating and it just feels slightly misogynistic, the, the approach they took to that character. What? Uh, that De Palma film, <laughs> slightly misogynistic? Yeah. Um, but it starts off, you know, great fun and you think, oh, I'm into this. And yeah, I know it's got some... Fantastic camera moves, the 360 pan where he realizes, where John Travolta realizes that uh, the powers that be have come in and they've wiped all his audio equipment. Um, uh, but it, it, I don't know. As it went along and it got further and further into it and it became this sort of protracted chase sequence with um, John Lithgow and what have you, I was like, oh, I'm just not into this. And this, this bombastic score that felt like uh, it had been snatched from pornos and Italian melodramas and it was all mushed together and I was like yeah I'm 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 okay not putting this on my list and not mentioning it on the podcast <laughs> so I'm glad that I <laughs> burned five minutes talking about it <laughs> uh, it's good to get it off your chest Kevin there was also Arsenic and Old Lace was recommended to me as one that people absolutely adore and love and um and it was just too screamy for me and too manic so I I I didn't finish it I'm sorry <laughs> That's okay. It's a. What about, will, will we throw it off the cargo now and see if uh, if there's anyone that he? Are you, we you will. Have more to, yeah, do you have more to say, Kevin? I've got loads more to say, but I'm talking too much. So let's let's hear from Cargill. Let's get Cargill <laughs> talking about a few of his picks. Well, yeah. So um, I picked a myriad of uh, different ones because there's you know there's so many there's so again so many I like and and there's ones that I thought were both kind of indicative of exactly what we're talking about and then ones that kind of aren't uh, like. Like right, I guess I to go back the furthest. Um, one that uh, me and my wife watch almost annually is the Thin Man. Where is he? What happened, Nick? Who do you want blasted? Man's just been killed. I think you boys better get out of here before the police arrive. Grab your kids! Oh, please! What happened? If there were any reasonable chance for me to help you, it'd be different. During this quiet little weekend in the country, my family's been threatened. I've had a knife thrown at me. I've been shot at, and I've been suspected of murder. Now on, this is your case. You handle it. I'm going back to New York and forget it. Come on, Mom. Uh, Oh, yeah. Okay. Which, you know, the Thin Man movies, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, was a series uh, back in the 30s. Uh, you know, post-prohibition in which it's a delightful drunken couple, one of whom is a detective, and they end up solving murders. Um, and it is just a delightful uh, little romp. I just I just love it so much. I love Nick and Nora. They are the epitome of what everybody kind of wants to be as a couple. They are very much in love. They are very funny and witty, and they are both drunk most of the time and that sounds uh, like you know my kind of movie <laughs> i got rid of all those reporters what'd you tell them told me we were out of scotch what a gruesome thought um uh, another one of the kind of classics is in in terms of the hercule poirot's or the agatha christie's i love evil yeah. under the sun um Ooh. 
I don't know that either. I don't know this. What is this? <laughs> oh, this is Peter hit us with some knowledge. It is Peter Ustinov as um uh, as Hercule Poirot. He is on vacation at a lovely uh, island resort, kind of recovering from having just solved a huge murder. He is very famous, and then someone is killed, and it's got James Mason again, uh, uh, Maggie Smith, um, uh, uh, Roddy McDowell's in it, Diana Rigg. Uh, and it's just a delightful, cool, fun. Uh, it's it's one of one of the things I like about it is Peter Ustinov plays one of the funnier versions of Hercule Poirot. Uh, yeah, very delightful. And so um, this movie allows itself to have fun. So you talk about those kind of Sunday afternoon, like just warm comfort blankets of a uh, of a murder mystery. That's this one. Uh, it's it's really good. I do not think that uh, formal introductions are necessary. Poirot. Hercule Poirot. There are those who have called me the greatest detective of all time, a description with which I find it difficult to quarrel. But even a great detective must at times recharge the little gray cells. And I recently took my vacation on an Adriatic island so remote as to be unknown even to the guide Michelin. Um. To go in an opposite direction, something I discovered just earlier this year that a friend shared with me is a 1950 film that you can't get here in the States. Uh, it's called Girl with Hyacinths. Oh, um, never heard of it. It's, no. I had never heard I, of it I either. was hoping I could say, oh, it's one of my favorites. I'm writing this down. <laughs> go on. No, no, no. This, one, cool. this is Hasse Ekman. Um, it is a Swedish film uh, from 1950, and it is about a writer whose neighbor kills herself. She commits suicide. Um, and writes him a letter that the police bring over that says, hey, I'm your neighbor. We don't know each other. I'm very sorry, but I'm declaring you the executor of my estate. Keep anything you want. Sell the rest. Just make sure my stuff gets taken care of. Um, and uh, he becomes obsessed with this girl and goes around. And the whodunit is who drove this woman to commit suicide. And so he goes oh. and starts interviewing her lovers um, and interviewing the people who knew her and putting the mystery together. And it is, by the time you get to the end of the movie, it is such a profound, what I, what I highly recommend is if you can track down girl with hyacinths, first of all, watch it. Cause it is brilliant. Secondly, do not Wikipedia it. It is one of those okay. things that everybody feels they need to put something important in the opening paragraph that will give away the ending. And you don't okay. want to feel that and experience that ending the first time. Um, it is a really just incredible movie. Um, I showed it to Scott, uh, Derrickson, my, my writing partner and director. Um, and, uh, it was one of those movies he was reeling for days. And at first he was like, I'm so shocked you brought this to me. You, you're not the type of, you're the person who brings me like 70s slasher movies and 80s science fiction films. You don't bring me 1950s Swedish, you know, yeah. um, uh, character pieces. But then as he kind of broke it down, he's like, no, this is totally Cargill's jam. Like this is really, and he just like, I remember being on set, uh, cause we watched it while we were shooting our recent movie. And like three days later, he just looked at me and goes, I can't get this movie out of my head, man. Like this movie was so good. Oh, wow. Um, uh, so it is. It is one of the. I, I, I had never seen a whodunit as who drove this person to suicide. So before you see the black phone, make sure you see Girl with Hyacinths. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and I then, love that cross pollination, though. That's that's the great thing about creativity. Is like it can be one thing that pings off into another thing, and you know, films create other films. 
Yeah, I was I was literally talking about that today because uh, uh, online because um, every successful filmmaker I know has a section of their taste that that film elite that Cineus would consider questionable. Um, you know, like Ryan Johnson, who I'm about to talk about again, Ryan Johnson is obsessed with procedurals, like all of them, not just like, he's not like one of those who's like, no, I, I watch all the best ones. And like, he has 12 copies of girls with high girl with hyacinth on criterion Blu-ray. Um, no, he like, if, if any procedural is on, it, he's talked about it openly. Like if he's flipping channels and he comes across CSI, uh, he, it doesn't matter if he's watched it before. He'll watch it again. He just loves yeah. the concept of the procedural. And I love that. that well, the puzzles, I suppose. It's like that. It, you're, you're working your brain and you're also getting to see, you know, actual meaty scenes be played out. But it's those. It's that obsession with that questionable taste, that thing that we love that we don't necessarily talk about. I know. I, I know. I, I won't dr- say name a name, but I know an Oscar winning filmmaker who thinks the funniest person on the planet is Adam Sandler. Um, and he will watch <laughs> like when when he goes home from making his Oscar, you know, uh, quality films, he goes and smokes a bowl and watch some Adam Sandler movies, um, you know, and it's that passion for that oddball stuff, that side stuff that drives the engine that drives us to want to make the stuff that we do make um, mm-hmm. and that we'll borrow from in little bits and pieces. What with while not imitating, you'd never guess that the you know the person that made this this Academy Award nominated film also turned around and you know loves Little Nicky. Um, like that's just <laughs> not a it's just not a thought that crosses your mind. But then you see the little germinations in the jokes that you see in that movie, and you go, "Oh, here's somebody who really does know how to laugh and does appreciate humor." Um, and but like, that that Oscar winning. Uh, filmmaker is Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, no, it's, it's even more a feat than that. Like, uh, but yeah, but like Ryan, uh, I was gonna, the next film I want to talk about is Ryan's first movie, Brick. Oh, oh yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Brendan, I really screwed up. Screwed up how? The brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pins on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good. No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink. Like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope runner, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just wanna know if she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. You know, the high school set, the D- D- Dashiell Hammett-style story, where that's that's his passions coming out to play. And he wrote this really cool movie about a, a, a kid detective of sorts, a guy who's trying to solve this the murder of this girl from his school. Uh, For some and- reason, I always remember that film as being in black and white. It just has a black and white vibe to it, mm-hmm. even though it's not. And every time it, it flashes back up again, I'm like, oh, it's in color. I, it, I just don't remember the colors in the film. It just felt very, um, it just felt like a throwback. Well, it's it very really, muted. Like the, his yeah. color palette in that movie is not like vibrant. It is a very muted kind of a film. Uh, it's very of its age. You know, it's very 2004. Um, that was kind Which of. Which was a, a great year. <laughs> a great era, I think, the early 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I just, there's not much so more to the say. So that's the second, that's the second. Uh, who done it that he's done 
He's done Brick and he also did Knives Out. Well, and, and a third one. He's going to do a sequel to Knives Out for... He's doing two sequels. Uh, Netflix two sequels. gave him like $400 million $400 to make million. two oh, Swords <laughs> drawn. That'll be the next one. Because <laughs> there's a lot of special effects sequences in these uh, Agatha Christie type stories, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, no, no, no. I mean, the key to the, the, the key to all that money is to get the big names. That's where you bring in, a, you get your A-list cast. Um, yeah. So that's that's what's really exciting about that is that there, these are like he's I mean, and in true fashion, he just shot it in Greece. Like uh, so oh. in the pandemic, he shot an A-list. Uh, in fact, that was uh, one of my favorite jokes I've seen in the last year was there were so many announcements uh, uh, of who the, oh, yeah. uh, the, the cast was in Knives Out. Somebody said, if you are in line to be cast in Knives Out too, stay, <laughs> stay in, in line. line. <laughs> yeah. I saw that tweet. I can't remember who she was that, that wrote it. It was very funny. Yeah, that was just that that made me laugh so hard <laughs> because that's that's exactly what it felt like. It's like, no, everybody's going to get a chance to be in a Knives Out movie now. Um, I can't wait for that. I yeah, think no. we're going to share picks, Cargill. I have a feeling you haven't mentioned uh, a big one that is going to be my uh, pick for best uh, who done it. So I'm curious. Keep going. Keep going. Oh well, that was that that, that was what I had on deck. Oh, I guess the one other I would mention that the 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 spoof that I think is the best who done it spoof ever. Clue. Yes. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you've got you've got a kindred spirit in Kevin here. Every person in this room has the perfect motive. Stand back! For murder. What do you mean? Murder. But only one of these suspects is the murderer. Is it the timid Mr. Green? Why are you screaming? Because I'm frightened of what? Screaming! Or the militant Colonel Mustard? If I was the killer, I would kill you next. Huh? Sit here. Mrs. White, who helped her husband on his way. What's well, a matter of life after death? Now that he's dead, I have a life. Ah! Miss Scarlet, who's helped many men along the way. Practice makes perfect. Huh. Professor Plum, who's looking for a way. I'm looking, I'm looking. Mrs. Peacock. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Or did the butler do it? No. Yeah, yeah see, I, I saw a Clue in a theater, so I got to see it with a oh single my God. ending. Oh, okay. Which ending did you see it with? I saw it with the with the big, what's considered now the final ending, the real ending, according to the 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 the, the home video version of it. The third one. Yeah, the one where they're all responsible in one way, shape, or form. It's kind of the. Uh, it's <laughs> Which kind is the of, perfect ending, I think murder on the orient express version where it's yeah. everyone but one of the guys is actually a real detective and in fact i used to for years when i worked at the video store uh i every day when i'd leave i'd just smile and wave and go i'm gonna go home and sleep with my wife <laughs> and, and, and i found that out is that is a great line to quote except that no one on the crew actually had seen that movie and thought it was being weird <laughs> they had oh, no idea wow. i was quoting quoting clue every day on the way out from work and so they just thought i was being creepy and bragging about the fact that i was going home to get laid <laughs> so when one of them watched clue they like passed it around to everyone else and they go cargill's doing a bit he's been doing a bit this whole time <laughs> that's fantastic uh, you see i would have i would have mentioned clue if i didn't mention we did we had an episode on uh, post credit scenes was it post credit oh, and yeah. so i decided to completely twist it and bend it to get me to talk about clue where i was like yeah. the three endings um that came after the, f- the two endings that came after the film had ended i said i'm gonna 
pretend that these are post credits and talk about Clue. Uh, so I, I, I didn't think of it for this episode, but I love that film. It's, that's one of the few whodunits that you can watch over and over and over mm-hmm. again because it's just, it's a romp. Yeah, no, it, it's very funny. It's one of those comedies that it, the comedy is timeless. It's clever. You're always, you know, it's, you're always laughing. It's so quotable. Um, you know, I have, I, I, my wife loves to just every once in a while, she'll just be flames, flames. coming out of my face. <laughs> um, I believe that's the only ad lib line in the whole movie. Maybe it's, it's a yeah. very clever script and, uh, and it's very well done. And it's one of those things like, how do you adapt a board game and turn it into something on its own? And they really got it. And, and I would argue that that's kind of, that led to Jumanji, you know, the particularly Absolutely. The, the, the recent ones, um, which, uh, you know, the Jake Kasdan. Oh, wait, that's another one. Um, I was going to mention Zero Effect, Jake Kasdan's first movie. Oh, uh, with Bill Pullman. Yeah, with, with oh, Bill, yeah. Bill Pullman as the detective and Ben Stiller as this lawyer working for him that does all the legwork for him. And it is the the big thing about the lawyer is the law or the the detective is he's a complete shut in, but he's a genius and he can figure out the the he can figure things out from where he is in his room often. But if he needs to go into the field, he goes out and he never is himself. He never goes as a detective. He's always pretending to be someone else because he's not comfortable in his own skin, but he's a brilliant detective otherwise. And it is one of the most interesting, dysfunctional detective character stories I've ever seen. I rewatched and we did it in our podcast recently and my, my cohort had never seen it and he just instantly fell in love. And it is just such a cool, interesting story where what's interesting about this particular whodunit is you find out who did it 30 minutes into the movie but now it's the why did they do it Mm. like why is did that character do this thing why are they blackmailing this person why is all this going on and when the and you find out the entire mystery at the end and it all comes in and all the pieces were there and you're like oh this is what what a great mystery and what a great character piece that completely uh, went under the radar as well. It's a film that really didn't, no one really no, took any notice of. So that's it. That's, I'm so glad you brought it. I haven't thought about that film in 20 years. It's worth revisiting. You're probably the best. Excuse me. Excuse me. You are the best private investigator in the world. Two shots, down she goes, execution style. Guess what the victim's name is. Uh, let me guess. No, I don't mean really guess. No way you can actually guess. Clarissa. I'm being blackmailed, Mr. Arnold. How desperate? Scale of one to ten. Bordering on manic. <clears throat> I need the matter resolved. Take me to the scene of the crime. This is the thing where I uh, had a pick. And then I changed my mind on the pick. And then as we were talking about the rules for what a whodunit is, I thought my pick doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fit and my backup doesn't fit. And I, um, I'm like, I've watched all these movies and I can't think of like a great scene from them. So I'm going to go back to what my original choice was going to be. Yeah. And I'm going to. There are no rules. Go on. Because I was, I was originally going to go with Memento. Oh. Because Memento is, it's, well, it's it's one of those scripts that even if I watched that film or, or one of those films, even if I watched it a dozen times and then I was told, okay, sit down now and transcribe that movie, mm-hmm. write it from beginning to, I wouldn't be able to do it. It's such a, it's such a masterful puzzle that gets 
unfolded in front of us. Um, but it falls down on the ensemble aspect where it really is a crime story and it's just him investigating himself and he doesn't realise it. Mm-hmm. And there are great reveals, there are great turns within the story of, of there's a fantastic scene with Carrie Ann Moss where she realises she can manipulate this guy into offing her drug dealer boyfriend. So she winds him up to the point where he punches her. And then when he storms out, or she storms out, she comes back in and she pretends to be like, He's like, what happened to your face? And she's like, what do you think happened? He hit me. And we just watched the whole thing just play out in two minutes where she was telling him you're, you're a reject and all this kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I thought that's, that's a, that's a good one to go with. You sad, sad freak. I can say whatever the fuck I want and you won't remember. We'll still be best friends. Or maybe even lovers. But because it was my backup, I haven't watched Memento in about 15 years. So I just have this lingering memory of, I love that. I love that moment where it was revealed that uh, the, the side story that he was telling about Sammy, the guy that was, um, who had the same condition as him and his wife started to doubt him. So she ended up having him over and over uh, injected with insulin where he killed her it was actually about himself it was like that was a great reveal but because it was my backup I haven't watched it in such a long time so I, I'm not as uh, on sure footing on the story as, as I'd like to be to be able to sort of like sell it to you so I'm going to go back to my original pick oh <laughs> which again I don't think fits into the whodunit category but it is um, it's the thing <laughs> and because <laughs> the well, thing is like ten little Indians, yeah, and it's not a who done it; it's who is it. And when I think about great uh, who done it's, it's it's about the reveal. And that film, you've got sort of a shifting protagonist in that everybody is sort of investigating it at different stages, and the information has been shared. We're obviously sticking with Macready's character, um, but you've got the Doc, and you've got uh, um, Jennings, and all those guys or Bennings. Uh, and I thought, yeah, there's a great moment in that where they're doing the blood serum test to basically reveal who the killer is in the room. And when you think of great whodunits, that's a that's a cracker of a scene. 
but I realized that it's a monster movie. And if you were to tell people what the thing is, they're not going to think who done it. No, so, man. As soon um, as you said, as soon as you started putting it out there, we put it out there. I just went, oh shit, this is that is such a who done it. It really is. In my, you know, you've got this ensemble of characters. No so there's a fit. Can I go with it? We've got I red herrings. So. We've got Mister X. We've got reveals. Um, Interestingly enough, the the film was originally written as an ensemble. It was not written with McCready as the main character. Um, the the first cut of the film didn't work. They went back and did three weeks of reshoots to restructure it to make McCready the protagonist. Uh, but initially, it was structured as a whodunit, where you were just watching this ensemble of characters and you had no idea who the killer was. See, when you say that now, I really want to know, was McCready's introduction one of those reshoots where he's playing chess and he's, you know, saying cheat and bitch and pouring the, the whiskey into the, the I'm, hard I'm drive pretty certain it is. I'm pretty certain because that is such a lovely inversion of how the film ends, where he's outside the camp with Charles mm-hmm. and he offers him the whiskey, mm-hmm. and Charles drinks from it and he laughs, and it's like he's been playing chess this whole time. I know he realizes that Charles is just taking a drink from the whiskey, knowing that you're not meant to share any sort of, um, uh, you're not meant to eat from the same cans or whatever or whatever they, they say, uh, and because he's fearless about it, it's like, oh, I get it. You have nothing to fear because you're it. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, you've made me change my pick, and uh, because you're bending. The okay, then like I'm going to go with what your pick originally was. Uh, you've changed my pick because I'm going to go with uh, Alien because it's an it's an ensemble cast. Ah, They're fuck in- off! Now you're just taking the piss. <laughs> it's right? not a who done it. It's where the fuck is it? You know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, Cargill. Usually the game comes down to this that we have we have to put our hat on a on a on a particular post and say this is my favorite who done it scene or who done it movie. What would yours be? Um, it's it's a toss up, but I'm gonna go with L.A. Confidential. Oh, we were discussing this before we went on. <laughs> they were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze, Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You truly prepared to be despised within an apartment? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Edmund Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, college boy, I'll help. Now, all of them are faced with solving one case. Don't move! I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. These people are all... Oh, my God. We were discussing this before we Just before you came on, (laughs) I was talking to Joe Barton, a writer friend of mine, who has written his own whodunits with Gary Hadji and what have you. Um, And I said, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to say. And he said, just go with LA Confidential. And I said, oh, fuck, but I've not watched it in so long. I don't, I don't remember the scenes to be able to point out. And he went, well, that sounds like a you problem. Um, so, <laughs> Tell us, why is LA Confidential your, your, your best whodunit? You know, it really is one of those things that the character work in it is so powerful. And it has a character in it. Russell Crowe's cop wrestling with his inner rage 
and the fact that he's been used as this, you know, tool of aggression, this, you know, he's essentially, he's essentially what we would highlight as a bad cop. Uh, yeah. but he means well, like he's doing what he's doing for good reason. And, you know, um, him bumping up against Guy Pierce, this is Edmund Exley, you know, who's the, you know, he's a good cop, but he is more, he's got his eye more on the prize of, you know, climbing up the ranks and of politics and this juxtaposition between these two characters who one is what we would think of as a good cop. And one is what we think of as a bad cop, but their internal motivations are flipped. Miss, I'm Lieutenant Exley. I'm sorry to have to ask you this. I need to know what time they left you. Get her to the hospital. I realize this is difficult. Give you career arrest. Leave her alone. A naked guy with a gun? You expect anyone to believe that? Get the fuck away from me. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. Justice. You don't know the meaning of the word, you ignorant bastard. Yeah? Well, you think it means getting your picture in the paper. Why don't you go after criminals for a change instead of cops? Stenzlin got what he deserved, and so will you. And I love that that the battle between the inner demons of those characters and the fact that everyone in this movie is, you know, uh, greatly flawed. Like, there is no one good, clean character in the entire movie. Nobody is pure. Yeah. Everybody is dirty. Um, and that it 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 plays with that classic era of what we think of in terms of the American whodunits. Like you've got the British school of whodunits, which is the Agatha Christie. And then you've got the American whodunits, which is the Dashiell Hammett. And, uh, and it is very much the Dashiell Hammett school, uh, but it is taking that to the nth degree where it just kind of hits all those notes just right. Um, and the, so many memorable performances, um, you know, uh, so many great turns when you find out who it is, uh, who the, the, the ultimate villain of it is it kind of breaks your heart because it's somebody yeah. that you really one of the few people you thought wasn't dirty in the movie is the dirtiest uh and it just it just does all of that right and it's one of those infinitely rewatchable just great pieces of cinema um that i think is going to go down in history as one of the best films of that era it gets better and better as as each year you know passes it's a film that just ages better and better and better do yeah. you have a particular scene from that film that you really love i really like i really like the scene where edmund exley dresses down uh russell crowe like just that whole that whole thing where it's really it's really what i was ta- just talking about that juxtaposition of the two character motivations versus the character's actions uh, it's one of those things where you really, you really feel, you begin to feel for Russell Crowe because you just see him kind of as a thug along the way. And then you kind of hit this point where you're like, oh, I get this guy. I get what he's doing. I get this inner rage he has. I get how he uses it. He wants to be the good guy. And he's got this demon in him that won't let him be the good guy. And yeah. I just, I, I just, and, and you see Edmund Exley go after him and dress him down as being a bad cop and, you know, uh, and being exactly what's wrong with the force. Uh, but then you're also acknowledging that, but Edmund Exley's what's wrong with the police. When you're thinking more about your own career than you're thinking of the point of your career, are you really serving the the community? And I think that that just that sequence is just so good. The, the, particularly, I I love the scene out in the hotel uh, where they've taken the guy out there and 
they're working them over and it's just it's just so raw and it's so hard and but there's so many good scenes in that movie i mean another great one of the other great scenes is you know cut a whore to look like veronica lake doesn't make her veronica lake and then he gets a drink in the face it's like what would she that for that was veronica lake lapd sit down who in the hell do you think you are uh, take a walk honey before i haul your ass downtown you are making a large mistake get away from our table shut up a hooker cut to look like Lana Turner is still a hooker. Hey! She just looks like Lana Turner. She is Lana Turner. What? She is Lana Turner. <laughs> oh, fantastic film. Fantastic, fantastic I need film. to... I went to, I went and watched about 20 uh, whodunits that I'd not seen, and I forgot to watch LA Confidential. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have you never seen it? I have. I've seen it. I saw it when it came out. Yeah. Um, and I, I've oh. caught scenes from it, uh, sections from it, whenever it pops up on TV. And I'm always sort of struck by how beautiful it looks. And yeah. also, just uh, Danny DeVito in it, just the the, the mm. role that he's playing. He's a great character. It's it's another film that's stacked with great performances. And Everyone's great. Everyone's it's got that really great bleak ending. Um, mm. A pyrrhic victory. Shall I tell you what my pick was? That I was afraid I didn't want to bring it up in case uh, Cargill or yourself had it, so I said I didn't want to step anyone on anyone's toes. In a good murder mystery, we deduce. Uh, okay, what, what go the, on. The answer's going to be. <laughs> go on. Okay, what have we not talked about? Is it um? Okay, it's not going to be Who Framed Roger Rabbit because you already spoke about that on no, a different episode. Roger Rabbit. Um, it's uh give me a clue is it an ensemble film it's definitely it basically is uh the almost the stereotypical agatha christie uh you know who done it uh, is it a murder on the orient express no but we've already mentioned the director the director has already been mentioned by one of uh one of kevin's picks actually brian de palma no No. one of my picks one of my picks oh robert altman robert altman and uh my pick has to be oh it's Gosford it's Park. Gosford Park. Gosford Park. <laughs> I, I solved that. Yeah, well done. <laughs> yeah, we know the very idea of service is offensive to you, George. Hello, I'm Morris Wiseman. Bought marmalade. Tell me, I call that very feeble. Bought you some coffee. If I wanted coffee, I'd have run for it. Mr. Weissman, tell us about the film we're going to make. It's a detective story. Murder in the middle of the night, a lot of guests for the weekend, everyone's a suspect. You know, that sort of thing. Horrid. Gospel Park <laughs> is, and I revisited it last week, and it is an absolute cracker. It's a, you know, it's... It's this stereotypical Agatha Christie type whodunit where you have an ensemble of these upper British class people coming to an estate house for a uh, a shooting weekend. And so all, and it, you know, a murder happens halfway through the film. But what immediately strikes this film apart or, uh, you know, uh, uh, from all of the rest is the point of view of the story. And the point of view of the story is it's all told from the, you know, the people the servants, uh, the people, the, the the downstairs people, and I 
absolutely adore the juxtaposition, as we said, of like you know the seeing seeing the the the, the stiff upper upper class people. Don't Abbey kind. Don't Abbey. Well, it was written by Julian. It's Fellows. Julian Fellows, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah, it yeah. Was, I was going to make a Downton Abbey joke, but uh. <laughs> it's Julian Fellows. <laughs> yeah. But what I love about this film is I've never seen Downton Abbey. Well, I haven't seen I'm, my I'm an American, kind of... so we're obsessed with it. <laughs> what do you like about it? To tell us, explain to us, what do you love about those English period costume dramas that, that England does so well that the Americans eat up? Uh, it's the fact that it is so removed from our own society and what was happening here. Like, we have our own, you know, the, the idea of a... Um, you know, of an inherited ruling class is very foreign to us. And so it almost borders on fantasy film for Americans. You know, the idea of being born into wealth and opulence (laughs) and the differences between, you know, that established class as opposed to what we struggle with here in the United States, which is purely one of uh, economic class. Yeah. Um, You know, yeah, you can be born into wealth, but that doesn't mean you're always wealthier that anybody, you know, has to treat you a certain way and we were fascinated by the entire structure of it because there are rules and there you know there's you know i i on it put a gun to my head i cannot tell you the difference between a lord and a baron um oh i can't (laughs) but but yeah no but but it is just it there it is the fact that it is this very particular era. It is an era that even though that stuff exists today, it's not done. It's not handled in the same way that it used to be. Um, and uh, uh, there I still mean, is yeah. a class system in the UK, though. It still sure. goes on. You still have lords and ladies and um, barons and what have you. Um, yeah, no, and you have the House of Lords, which is completely alien to us. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, but it, that's just that. Keep that's it that fa- way. <laughs> That is the fascination of it is, is just this, it is ultimately like, you know, um, uh, it just feels like a grounded fantasy film, you know, fantasy without the swords, uh, and, and, and wizards. Uh, but it is, uh, yeah, it see, is very, it's just different the way, the way I see, you know, um, uh, uh, many, uh, uh, folks from the UK obsessed with the old West, you know, in the old West period right. here in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we're just like, that was just frontier life and it sucked. Like, you know, yeah, there's the, you know, the the whole Western aspect of a very subgenre of an era that didn't really exist, which was a kind of fa- fantastical version of that. But yeah, we, that's just our frontier era. Whereas I, I find get, people. I get that uh, uh, sort of kick out of TV shows like Succession or House of Cards, where it's just, that's wealth on a scale that is just, it's so fantastical. And these mm-hmm. people are in rarefied air and everybody's so poised and so pointed and sharp with their words. And you're just watching very um, erudite people, I think, just navigate the world that doesn't relate at all to my own experiences. So it's like it's like watching a sci-fi film. I mm-hmm. But the thing about Gosford Park is that I think oh, to bring it, it back is, to Gosford. No, I want to bring it back. I'm trying, trying <laughs> got to. Got to. But, 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 but what, what the point you're, you're making? You're listening to cast where we talk <laughs> all Downton Abbey all the time. <laughs> but the thing, but but I think what you're what you're articulating there, Cargill, particularly, um, is illustrated beautifully in Downton Abbey, where 
in actual fact, the, the whole class system is revealed to be a facade. It's a performance. The, 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 when the, when in the Gosford Park. In, sorry, in Gosford Park. When, when, the, when the middle class people, the aristocrats are, are in the room, they're performing for each other. But when they retreat to their bedrooms, they kind of lose that performance and they have a different relationship with their servants. It's a more intimate, uh, intimate uh, yeah, relationship. Yeah, gossiping and stuff. And then when the servants are down, in the, down at the dicks, they have a really, you know, just matter of fact way of talking about each other. But as soon as they're in the presence of the aristocrats, they just all of a sudden just perf- turn on the you know the, mm-hmm. the servant uh, role, and I love that just big juxtaposition. Um, but the thing I loved about this, there's a scene in this film which clearly stood out as my my best bit or my best bit of this film, um, and it kind of ties into what I said earlier uh, about you know often the my favorite whodunits are films that really aren't about you know the the, the crime or solving the crime. Mm-hmm. And the moment that I absolutely love in Gosford Park is the moment when the crime actually occurs and it's the most beautiful serene moment because we're presented with this estate house which is just busy with people on the upstairs and then the people you know scurrying around underneath to make the people upstairs kind of like have everything they need and everything they want and but what happens is there's this pivotal moment after a dinner where everything's kind of like blown up and uh Ivor Novello is uh, this uh, actor is at the piano and he starts singing and he has got a beautiful voice and everyone in the drawing room just stops and listens. I can give you the mountains Pools of shimmering blue Call and I can be All you ask of me Music in spring Flowers for a king All these I bring And then his voice just carries throughout the house and it carries up the stairs up to the first floor but it also carries down the stairwell down to the servants' quarters and all the servants are just perched on the steps listening to this voice and everyone is unified in this moment just listening to this gorgeous voice but we we juxtapose it with seeing a murder take place and it's gorgeous it's just all the film just the whole film just quietens for this moment and the crime happens and then the the film turns I just love that moment flowers for a king all these I bring to you don't 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 please don't just go on and on and on I just watched it again recently because it's a great whodunit. But what it's like when I watch Home Alone uh, or rewatch Home Alone and I realize that all the stuff that goes on in Home Alone, all this crazy antics, is like the last 15, 20 minutes of the film. There's a whole movie that is just the boy going about his day, just living, uh, having Christmas by himself, and all the sort of the robbery and the, the home invasion. It's just the last 20 minutes of the film. And the same thing with Gosford Park, where it's like, the, the the actual murder in that film doesn't happen till like an hour and 20 minutes in. Yeah, yeah. And Stephen Fry plays a detective who comes in for like about three scenes. Mm-hmm. He's bumbling. He doesn't know what he's... He, he's not a very competent detective because his sergeant who's with him it wants to do more detective work than he's doing, and he's just more interested in talking to um, uh, 
to a Kirsten Scott Thomas and what have you. Playing into the fact that it's actually the, the, the lower class people are the ones who actually do the working and the middle class people are just the face. They're just go, oh yeah, oh, yeah, that's do good. That. I didn't, I didn't yeah. put those oh, the two together. The whole film is that, is that, you know, the, the, the middle class people are just playing the role of the, 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 the people who are making, playing the role of like the leaders and the, 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 head, the head figures of uh, all these but different But it's, it's a very nebulous whodunit because yeah. they don't solve the crime. It's the people that have perpetrated it um, they they unload why they did it. They they get it off their chest, and it's um, yeah, it's uh, it doesn't have that classic thing of someone solving the crime. It's the killers come clean about why they did it, and it's really affecting us. It's really kind of quite sad the reasons mm-hmm. behind it. But uh, and yeah. that's one I can watch over and over and over again. It doesn't matter. It's not the the who done it isn't what's important. It's the it's the it's this life that's revealed. You know, they made a whole TV series about it, Downton Abbey. You know, so yeah, I need to revisit it. Um, it's a great movie. I didn't like it when it came it's out. Beautiful. You did not. No, no, no. And but I remember my frustration at the time was all. Altman's filmmaking because I remember there being frustration with you know characters like turning and having conversations behind their back and then the soundtrack being kind of muffled and like it's like characters are mumbling and it's like I want to hear what these characters are saying why can I not but you know what that was he mic'd up every single character so everyone that was in the scene even though they're not the focus of the scene you might have 20 odd people in a room Every one of them are mic'd, and he just in the the post production he just decided to raise the levels on one person, and and everyone was still performing as if the camera was on them, mm-hmm. but he was just deciding I'm just going to raise up the the two guys playing pool over there or playing snooker, and now I'm just going to shift over to this woman who's like serving the tea, and um, yeah, I just felt like I was floating through that manner and just yeah stealing glimpses it feels like that like i said i need to re i need to revisit it as somebody who's like seriously like me and my wife watched downton abbey and we we, we went and saw the the movie released in theaters and like yeah. we've we've oh like God. Taken that i forgot dive, there so, was a movie <laughs> oh yeah yeah there there was a movie um was it good uh, there's a second one coming out this christmas there is yeah you know it was it was it was fan service which is it's it's exact it's you know it is <laughs> It is the uh, more effete version of an MCU movie. You know, it's okay. a, a lot of times, you know, you just kind of go to see those oh, movies to enjoy <laughs> watching your favorite characters interact in certain ways. And and that's what very was much the post credit scene? Maggie Smith just saying, <laughs> for heaven's sake, woman. And I it do was, it again. It was, it was, it was Lord Crawley coming back from the grave. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Oh, um, God. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, no, it was it was entertaining. Uh, you know, we had a good time, but uh, uh, yeah, there is another one coming out. But having gone through that, the the lighthearted Julian Fellows version of that, I kind of want to go back and revisit that darker, Dude. more sinister uh, version of that exact same world. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. I'll tell you, for me, that film blended into the background. It was like it was a film that came out in two thousand and one. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it at the time. I couldn't remember much of it. Went back to revisit it for this uh, podcast and loved it. I thought, oh, that is a great movie. That is a really uh, well done film and refreshing in this era where there's so much emphasis on IP just to be with characters that you don't know who they are. 
You guys just, inspired you, me to not only revisit that, but it made me think of it. it I, Gosford Park gets mixed up in my head with something else that I have not seen since I was a kid. That is also a whodunit, Gorky Park. Oh, a totally different film. But yeah, a totally different film, but I yeah. kind of want to watch Gosford Park and oh, Gorky Park together tonight. Shit, what yeah. the hell is Gorky Park? Oh, I've never heard that. Was it William Hurt? Uh, William Hurt. Um, it's got a great cast. Um, it's Gorky Park. It, it is essentially... Um, a, uh, I'm picturing uh, Muppets. Who done it? No. Set in Soviet <laughs> Russia. Yeah. I see. Oh my God. 1983. And of course, that that is a. Um, what's weird about that is, of course, you know, it's an American film that is presenting positive Soviet characters, mm-hmm. which was a thing you really didn't do in. Was it state funded by the Russians? No, no it's American. No, not at all. It's it's that's uh, bizarre. Uh, the cast is um, CIA wouldn't be happy with that. <laughs> William Hurt, Lee Marvin, Brian Dennehy. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good cast. Mm-hmm. That is. It's a Who Michael Apted film. Michael Apted. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. Maker of one of the best documentary series ever. Yeah. Seven to Seven Up TV series. Just so, died mm-hmm. recently. R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know he passed away. Oh, yeah, it just, just very recently. The upside over then. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're obviously, yeah, they they're finished. Yeah, no, I think. Well, no, I think, I think they'll continue. I think they'll continue for the lifespan of the the, the remaining people. Oh, but I, oh, wow. you know, I don't think. Well, he's not going to be there to to yeah. see it through. I think he was eighty when he passed. But what they a only, he was never going to see it through because he was no. doing that as an adult when they were seven. So yeah, um, they're near seventy now. They're probably well. They're over sixty. They're in their sixties. They're sixty-three. So yeah, so that's an amazing series. For those of you that don't know what we're talking about, there's this great documentary series where Michael Apted filmed a bunch of kids at the age of seven and called it Seven Up, and yeah. then decided to do it again when they were fourteen, and then again when they were twenty-one, and then it became a full-on series where every seven years it's he remarkable. Up with and all it, these. All these people, and it's just about the people in their lives, and you get to watch them from the time they're seven years old and what their hopes or dreams are, and not all of them survive through the series. No, no, um, and some of them drop out. The one thing he, the, the one regret he said he had about that series was that he wished he casted more girls uh, originally. That there was too many boys oh, in it. Oh, right. So there was a yeah. lot of boys. Yeah, but the, I, I genuinely feel it's one of the most important documentary series ever made. Ever made, and I feel it's something that should be shown to all young teenagers to kind of like um, steal them and make them aware of the the, oh, the twists and turns. Yeah, the twists and turns of life and uh, how things will change every seven years in your life for better and worse. And it's gripping. From one series to the next, you might you you leave one you know at the age of twenty one. You might leave one character at the age of twenty one really worried about them and yeah. feel this person might not be around when we when we we see yeah. them twenty eight. And it oh it's a it's seri- I I'm sorry I love it so much. So please do check it out if you can. I don't know where you it's not available anywhere really. It's not on. I haven't found it anyway. Well, you know, it's the 21st century. I think you can find whatever you want to these <laughs> yeah, days. Yeah, if you know um, me. <laughs> so t- what was it? You went with Gosford Park. Yes. Cargo went with LA Confidential. Yeah. And I bungled it and went with The Thing. But I think... <laughs> I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. I think that's a great... Uh, a but great... I, think, I think we nailed it. And I think there's some cracking recommendations there. Yeah. I'm definitely going to look out for... Uh, what was it? Hyacinth? Uh, uh, girl, girl with girl Hyacinth. Hyacinth. Girl with Hyacinth. Absolutely. Like that is seriously, don't look anything up on it. Track it down where you can. You guys might have an easier job finding it than we do um, uh, over here in the States. Uh, I had to get a download of it from somebody who ripped it. 
Um, but, uh, uh, cause it's just never been available here, but yeah, it is well worth watching. It is just, it is one of those movies that you look at it and some of the, the, so there, there is a single shot with real camera work in it. And you're going to be like, no way was this made in 1950. This is, this yeah. is groundbreaking stuff. And, and it's just a movie that's ahead of its time and is so smart and well-crafted. And absolutely. If you, if you can find it out there, watch that movie. Wow. I was getting weirded out just one last thing when I was watching The Longer Boy and it's 19, I think that's also 1970, I think. It's 1972, right the, I believe. Yeah. And um, and he had a blender and I thought, wait, what? They had blenders in 19, I thought that was like an a 80s invention. Oh, no. And I realized, oh my God, there's not much time between uh, this, well, What's a, what's a massive chunk of time between now and the 70s is not that much time in terms of like when you're looking at how similar life is back then. Yeah. So, yeah. Cargill, listen, thanks a million. That was fantastic. <laughs> Truly, I am so glad you were on for this episode, Cargill, because your knowledge <laughs> of this topic was just was uh, tr- very impressive. And I'm grateful that you were there to pick up so much of the slack um, for us two dopes. And we really appreciate you giving us your time to, to come on the show. Guys, thank you so much for having me. Where, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Massaworm. That's M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M. Uh, yep. And you can find my books wherever you get your books. Um, sea of Rust, it's absolutely fantastic. I definitely uh, get that, don't you? I really genuinely enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a beautiful story and just a fascinating way to, um, to tell a post-apocalyptic tale from the point of view of machines. It's really great. If you want to have your pants scared off you, uh, watch Sinister because I watched it during the week and I'm never going to push the lawnmower the same again. I'm never yeah. going to, I'm always we going to. We mentioned that on last week's episode with Kate Dolan, a director friend of ours for Jump Scares, the, uh, the lawnmower gag in Sinister. Holy shit. <laughs> I, I think I did actually saw myself when that, that <laughs> jump happened. But, yeah, um, that, that, uh, yeah, that we're really proud of that sequence. That, that <laughs> sequence came out real well. Yeah, man. Awesome. Thanks so much, uh, Cargill. Uh, really appreciate it. And everyone, go listen to Cargill's podcast. Uh, Yeah, Junk Food Cinema. Junk Food Cinema. Oh, yeah, yeah. If if you're listening to a podcast and you like podcasts about movies every week, me and my buddy uh, Brian Salisbury, we pick a deep fried favorite of ours and just take a deep dive and spend an hour kind of picking apart uh, movies we love, movies we think are underappreciated. And uh, several of the movies we talked about today, uh, we – have done episodes on my podcast yeah. we recently we recently revisited the long goodbye um and we've uh we've we've dug into a bunch of these this is this is definitely our jam i was gonna say also your episode you just did recently with uh al horner for script apart was fantastic where you delved into oh. the the writing of uh oh, yeah, to that. yeah oh so. yeah yeah that was great that was a lot of fun so there you go thanks cargill thanks guys right. <laughs> great to have we'll you. Let you go i really Enjoyed that. Yeah. Oh, my God. I have got a, uh, a shopping list uh, full of films that I need to watch. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Like, he was... Cargill just had so much knowledge and was so passionate about Dudas. I'm surprised none of us mentioned Chinatown. But then... I, it's a crime film, I suppose. For me, that's a total noir. That's a total noir. Like, uh... I, uh but The Big Sleep, for me, is a total noir. And it gets mentioned as a whodunit. So... 
Yeah, I, I don't know anymore. I don't know. <laughs> I watched The Big Sleep, and I know, I don't know who did it. That's uh, that's, that's uh, we've come to the end of the Who Done It episode, and we still haven't figured out what a Who Done It is. <laughs> come here, we need to get on with business. We need to figure. No, we out. don't. Don't tell me we what do. next week's. I, I need a break. I'm exhausted. No, I've got this lovely, juicy, uh, jam-packed topic. Uh, but wait, we should tell people. It's our season finale. It's oh. episode ten, season two. We did it. We did another whole season. Oh, but not yet, because we've got to figure out what next week's episode is. This was so. the penultimate episode. Also, um Oh anyway, let's spin the wheel for the for the final time this season, right? I am so delighted that I get the chance to do this. I'm gonna <laughs> are you ready, Kevin? I'm gonna spin this. It's gonna be very loud in my ears, I won't be able to hear you for a second, okay? Okay. I am just hitting spin. It is very loud. And um Strawberries, 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 <laughs> elephant juice, elephant juice. Okay. Give oh, me something really easy. Okay. No, something really, oh, really okay. easy, no will. Okay, okay. Best Muppets scene. Ah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Best Muppets scene. Muppets. Well that's just the two of us. It's just gonna be a whole episode of us two Muppets just talking. <laughs> It's an easy one. It really is an easy one. So you're very much limited to. But the thing about oh my this God. is that you actually have. Wait, a, wait, wait. What? I want to. Does that Muppets include the other Jim Henson films like yeah. Labyrinth and yeah, yeah. Uh, Dark Crystal and? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And that one, that raunchy one that came out, the Detective the Noir. Oh, the Melissa McCarthy one. Yeah, but you can't remember the name of it right now. There was something murders the. Uh, Oh, Happy Town Murders. Happy Town Murders as well, right. So, listen, research-wise, you actually have a very limited scope, which is good. Oh, that's good. So, potentially, uh, I think you can watch them all, you know, before we, last, <laughs> before we next speak. Every one of them. <laughs> so can you. There's going to be two of us on well, this I've episode, few, not well, just me. I've got a few, I've got a few blind spots. <laughs> And um, oh, I'm going to do it. It's late here. It's because <laughs> yeah. Cargill is is in Texas, so <laughs> so we're um, this is much later than we usually record. Yeah. But uh, uh, so please, everyone, uh, like and what am I supposed to say on this thing? Like, share, subscribe, five stars, five stars. rate, review us. Um, thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. We're so rusty. We're so it's weird. We we take seven days off. We can't even remember how to end the What's podcast. Kevin, I don't know what hour it is. <laughs> uh, everyone, thanks very much for listening. Uh, we're going to say goodbye now and um, goodbye. And just remember, the butler did it. <laughs> <laughs> Best Bits Podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show, the full episode plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. Many bits. Another new episode of this Patreon podcast. Exclusive. The best bits podcast with Will and Ken. Bonus content for you, yeah. That's right, this is for you. Podcast with Bill and
Kevin, how are you? Hi, honey, how are you? Oh, you know, I've got this, I've got my corns sorted out. I went to the Chiroptus the other day and uh, she Your said... corn? To, my corns. Did you, ever get, did you ever get corns? No. Did you know what a corn is? Yeah, it's a bunion on your foot, isn't it? Yeah, like in between your toes and stuff like that. Do you, um, do you not wear any shoes like around the house? You walk no, barefoot. I, I, I wear, no, it's the opposite. GA shorts. It's the opposite. I wear incredibly tight shoes. Like those Chinese women. Oh. Who get their feet bound, who had their feet bound, like, you know, before the turn of yeah. this last century. And so they had incredible corns and bunions. This is a great opener for a mini bits episode where we get people disgusted. Squally, it's episode 73 of the mini bits. <laughs> I'm Kevin, you're Will. This is yeah. our Patreon podcast. Thank you to all our lovely patrons. Yeah. A few of you have jumped in recently. I don't know what we said. We try to goad people into joining up every single episode. And then every so often, it's like a lot of people join because of one specific episode. And yeah. I'm like, what did we, how did we say it? What did we say on that episode? It's different <laughs> to the other 270 episodes. Maybe it didn't sound as desperate. Maybe we said, don't join. Maybe reverse psychology. That's how we should do it. Reverse psychology. Don't join up to our patron. Don't. It's, <laughs> you don't des- Everybody you, cancel. You don't deserve to be in this group. We don't want you. We don't we like don't the look need of you. you. We, don't, we don't need anybody. <laughs> it's just us. It's absolutely just us. Hey, should we tell people? We, we did, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't say it on mic, especially so early. We did an interview with the Irish Examiner last Friday. We did. Yeah. And uh, how do you think yeah. I how do you think I did? I I I think you did all right. Like you didn't interrupt me once, so I was <laughs> delighted with how I came across. But you know, there's no sort of time limit on this. We don't know when it's going to get posted. One of our friends was saying, Kathy at the cinema was saying that their interview with did they do the examiner as well? It was six uh, months yeah. before it posted. And, and the Guardian, I'm pretty sure. They are they were profiled in the Gar- Guardian as well. Yeah, but we don't do any really promotion. Like nah. we don't do anything. Well, this is our first time getting any sort of like proper coverage, which is going to be mad. So um, uh, listen to all you listeners who have uh, found us before we explode. You're, 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 you're an OG. Bust. You're an OG <laughs> listener before Kevin starts getting gold chains from all his Patreon dash. I think I'm more of a silver than a gold. I think oh, yeah. my uh, undertones suit more silver. But, uh, yeah. I just want to die. Goes I, with Prince Albert. <laughs> Your hat? <laughs> yeah. I Speaking of, of the, which. I want one of those diamond studs in my tooth. That's all I want. So I can go bing whenever I'm on a call. Oh, uh, yeah. Bing. I usually just, you know, wink and like glints. Yeah. Like starlight twinkle. <laughs> Speaking of which, I interrupted you. What, what, we, what, did, what did you want to speak of, which? Start the time. Oh. I forgot. You may as well. Because start the timer. They, all, all these lucky losers are listening in and, and they're wondering, what are we going to be talking about? But we have to start talking about them after. Yeah. We, we say goodbye. But look, I wanted to talk to you about, um, well, you've seen a few things. You've seen the new Godzilla film. Yes. I've seen the first Omen. Uh, I saw Scoop as well. That, oh, uh, we're looking Netflix forward to watching thing. that. Okay. Okay. I'll save my thoughts. And right. um, what else did I see? I made notes, but sure. You it doesn't did. really matter. I think I saw it. And I was going to go through all the summer releases and see what oh, takes your fancy. Okay. Okay. I'm looking forward because I don't actually know what's what's on the horizon. So um, I'm Well, the Joker 2 trailer came out today. I saw it. 
Yes, I watched that. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Chicago. Yeah, it's kind of like you see it's all very much in the mind's eye. It, they're calling it a jukebox musical. Am I right in saying that? I think you're right in saying that. So, like, hey, listen. Uh, I actually, what it, what it did remind me of <laughs> was that I want to watch, rewatch The Joker because I saw it in the cinema and I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. It was a kind of a bold new direction. Uh, I'm just going to go back and watch the episodes from the Batman 66 show, the Joker episodes. Oh yeah, that's going to be... Just to fill me in like on the lore. Get up to speed. Get you right up to speed. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll be there going, where where are all the guys in the purple suits with the masks? When are they going to show up? And like, you know... It's a weird time though, where we have the Penguin TV show with Colin Farrell coming out, which is a totally different canon version of the Penguin. Then you have this offshoot of Joker, which is its own universe entirely. Mm. And then you have the old Batman films that you can watch. Right. And, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just, I don't know. I'm kind There's of so many IP. But like it's this, just everywhere. What, well, what's happened is the world, the comic book world has very much entered the, the film world. It's where you could have different runs, totally different runs of a character by it's different insane. authors and there would be totally different riffs on it and stuff oh oh it's this is the insane. thing Kevin so I'm only catching up on this you mentioned it to me on a on a pod, on a podcast Wait, was it on one of those uh, it was the last show? it was the last mini bits uh, I you, think. you said everyone's describing stuff as insane recently and have you started noticing it though only 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 with people trying to raise you that's the only type only where, place where I've noticed people no, people on Discord are trying to every, raise you oh my god oh my god I could start posting now like um, tweets, comments, TikToks, uh, articles, anything. Insane is everywhere. This is insane. That's insane. It's insane. There was a festival just going on about this insane lineup. I was okay. like, oh, it's a mentally ill lineup. Okay. <laughs> it's just, it's it's everywhere. And the other thing, do you know the other thing that's also bothering me lately? Wow. Wow. And this has been bothering me for years and years and years. It used to be that everyone used to misspell definitely. They'd go defiantly. Okay. Oh, it's defiantly whatever. They would just, they were morons. But no, I just keep noticing everyone keeps spelling a lot as one word. A-L-O-T. A lot. Where has, where have they gotten into their heads that a lot is one word? It's the same way that people will write every time as one word. What's the one that you've, you've pulled me up on a few times and I can't get it right? Compliment. Compliment. I can't, (laughs) but I can't get it right. It's like the you I. Because I told you the other day. Yeah, and I went searching for it and I couldn't find it because I had to actually had to an, use it. If there's an I in compliment, it's yeah. I'm paying you oh, a compliment. That's a good way to remember it. Okay, good. And then compliment. I, I wrote that to you. But you did. And I went to try and find it because I was I would found myself writing the word compliments. And I went, shit, Kevin. But, I, but you, you gave me a thumbs up, which meant in my world that, yeah, I read that. Thanks. But I did, right? I'm talking about a couple of days later when I was faced with the exact same hurdle of writing the word compliment, I went, okay, what did Kevin say again about compliment? There's an I and the E. What did he say? So I went searching for it and I found it, I think. And I went, oh, the I is paying me a compliment or I'm giving you a compliment. It's insane how little you can retain information. It's insane. (laughs) Come here, let's start talking about what we watched. Come on. Did you start the timer? 
Yeah, it's it's gone. It's ticking. It's ticking down. The world's going oh, to explode. Do you know what I have to put in the sound effect? I have to. I have to line oh. up all my sound effects. When you said start the timer, like, I have a whole it's... fucking. I have a whole soundboard. Here. Okay. Jesus Christ! Where's me fucking? What? Where's me ding dang ding? Here we go. The timer has started. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Right. 